This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. 2024 is officially upon us. I'm James Witham. Of course, this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast and so excited to kick off the year with you. You know, I'll be honest, I've been having a lot of trouble lately getting new episodes recorded and done. I, I got the flu. Wouldn't recommend it. By the way, kept me down for a while. I couldn't I couldn't talk. I could barely move. So yeah, episodes going to be coming out on a more regular basis now that uh, I've gotten over that thing. And it's just been, it was a crazy 2023 for me. So I thought this would be a good time as I do every year. If you're a regular listener, you know what's coming here. Just look back on some of my favorite interview moments of the past year. It's been so fortunate, even throughout the strike and before that, because I mean, the strike didn't last all year, right? So there were so many great interviews that happened during the strike and before the strike. And, and I wanted to look back at some of those and talk about some of my, you know, my favorite moments and favorite stuff that I talked about last year. So I'm going to do a little different this year. It used to be, I would do clips right from the interviews. And I thought to myself, why don't I just play the whole interview in case it's from an episode that you missed? Or something like that, right? It just makes sense for me to try and play the whole interview for you. So I got a few interviews, well, more than a few, as you'll find out here in a couple minutes, that I wanted to throw at you. And I'm going to start, and these are in no particular order, by the way. These are just some of my favorite moments of the year. But one of the shows I talked about a lot this past year was from this big MGM Plus show, the big horror thriller. And there's just so much going on in the show. And it was such an incredible second season especially episode six was a huge one and i got to talk to Cortion moore who was one of the stars i talked to almost the entire cast of the show throughout the season but i got to talk to Cortion moore who plays ellis about episode six and boy was it a big time to talk to him so if you haven't watched season two of from yet first of all i recommend it second of all yeah there might be some spoilers in here for the first five episodes of second season so just be aware of that but one of my first things i want to look back on this year is my conversation with Cortion moore from from Cortion, what's up man what's up james how you doing man doing good man doing good just gonna try to talk about this without spoiling anything because man it's ah. it's gonna be a crazy ride here coming up as a matter of fact i want to talk about that for a second because harold sent out a tweet after this week's episode episode yep. five and he said that this upcoming episode is a game changer so i gotta ask you yep. man is episode six the biggest game changer of the series to date oh without a doubt man 
Like without a doubt. I mean, look, I I, I keep in con- I keep you know in touch with the Reddit, with Twitter, with, with the cast, with some of my friends who are watching it. And the big thing that people keep saying is like episode six, man. I hear episode six is gonna be crazy. And anything that anyone has heard so far is literally not even the tip of the iceberg. It is without a doubt, in my opinion, the craziest episode that we've shot out of both seasons. It's it's gonna be hard to beat. So as we try to tread our, tread carefully here, not spoil anything, I got to ask you just for you specifically, how difficult were these next couple of episodes actually for you to film specifically? So for me in particular, they were really challenging. And once people see it, they'll really understand why. It's a little scary for me to talk about, but man, look, I, I'll say this. I could not have been happier to have Jack Bender behind the camera and in the director's chair for six in particular, because it is just so much. It's so big and it's so important to the story of from, I think that's the big thing is as crazy as it is. And as much crazy shit goes on, it really is that, that episode that changes everything. So it was hard to, you know, to be able to live up to the writing and to be able to, to keep up with the stamina that people like Jack and Harold have. But I think, I think we all pulled together and I know I just, I slept extra long every night, you know, I bet you did. How much of that did you know was coming as you're going into filming for this episode? Did you guys kind of have an idea of what was going on? Or is it one of those Nothing. things where, because I know you guys kind of get the scripts as you go. So was it kind yeah. of a big surprise of, oh, so this is happening today? Dude, I think we found out maybe like two days before we started started shooting episode oh my six. Gosh. I think it was five and six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, so we started shooting five and six at the same time because we block shoot, right? So you do two episodes at a time every few weeks. And we got five which I, people have, have finally seen, which is a really great chance for us to kind of check in with all the characters, mm-hmm. especially now that Sarah's back in town. And we're all like, okay, so we kind of have our bearings now. We've checked in to see where everybody is. What the hell is going to happen at the second half of the season? And I think it was like two days before we went to camera on episode six, we got the script. And I could not, I literally could not believe what I was reading. And I don't know if you've spoken to Ricky, but Ricky and I have this thing where every time a new episode comes out, he's one of my best friends. And every time a new episode comes out, we get together and we read it. And we were literally jumping around my apartment like, oh, my God, oh my God are you fucking serious? Are you kidding me? This is crazy. It was, it, was, it was just a shock. It was a shock to me. And I really know it's going to be a shock to the audience. In more ways than one, for sure. But in, in all oh, this dude. chaos, Corteon, we've oh. got Ellis and Fatima. It's one of the, one of the few feel-good stories that we actually have going yeah. on right now. Yeah. How special, man, is that relationship? And how the hell are you plan a wedding in this town? Man. First of all, Pega is just such an astounding actor and being able to work across her has been probably the greatest gift I've had since I joined the cast. You know, working with legends like Harold, working with, you know, who's now one of my best friends, like I said, Ricky, that's all been great. But for me, the bread and butter has been working with someone who I personally am deeply in love with. And as you know, Ellis is just completely head over heels with. That relationship is really special to me. I think that is the... At its core, that is the heart of who this guy is. He's just in love and he's just trying to, he's trying to stay alive for that very reason. And I don't know, wedding planning is hard, man. I think we, you know, maybe got Julie and Donna helping us arrange some things, getting some flowers from the garden. And it's nearly impossible, but I hope that they can figure out a way to do it. I hope. You, you and know. me both, man. You People and me both. People have got some speculations and, uh, they don't think it's going to go too well. So I guess they'll have to tune in to find out. Yeah, well, you have to definitely wait and see for that. But we did, yeah. like you said, get to see Sarah come back. And yeah. Ellis was actually one of the few people that, that knew before anyone else did 
that she yeah. was back. So that that's kind of because he and he backed his dad's play there. So how far do you think Boyd and Ellis will go to protect one another? To protect one another, I think there's no there, there there's no end to their loyalty. There's no end to their love, especially on this new you know relationship that the two of them are are kind of still exploring. It's it's still really early. I mean, they've kind of had a rebirth and like a whole re you know tread on on what it means to be father and son, but also what that means in a place like this. So, mm. you know, when it comes to something like the tough decisions, like keeping Sarah a secret, although it pisses Alice off, although Alice is still so hurt because he is still hurt. He's still a kid and he still has no idea how to actually handle these emotions. But on top of all of that, or really underneath all of that, there's that thing you just have with the people that mean that much to you. So he just laid off, you know, and, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into even some of that in episode six and, and uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, man. Six. Everything just comes back to six. It, it really everything does. It really back. does. Really yeah. quickly, before I let you go, one word to describe the vibe at Colony House right now. Shit. It's <laughs> fucked. Everything's fucked, man. It's just <laughs> nuts. I mean, like just between Randall coming in and trying to fuck with our whole our whole thing, you know, and our fearless leader, Donna, is, seems to have some fear in her. And it's just it's just shit. But it's still in my opinion, the best place to live because at least houses aren't crashing down. So, yeah. Cartier Moore, man, thank you so much for for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, brother. Now, I should mention that interview was from episode 471 of the podcast. In case you want to go back and listen to the rest of it, there's more from interviews on that episode too, by the way, just in case you're wondering. One of the shows we said goodbye to in 2023 was The Flash. And you you could say what you want about the final season of The Flash. Certainly had its ups and downs. But one of my favorite new characters that they introduced in that season was the new Captain Boomerang, Richard Harmon. If you're a fan of The 100, you already know who Richard Harmon is. And I thought he did a great job playing Captain Boomerang in this final season. And my conversation with him from episode 458 of the podcast this past year was so much fun. I had to relive it with you again. Richard, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic today. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, I guess it's this kind of a welcome back to the DC universe for you, because actually you had a small part in an episode of Smallville in season eight. Did you ever think you'd be back? Gaunt teenage addict, as I recall. <laughs> That's exactly what I it was. was. I was probably 17 years old. I, I, You know, I was hoping I'd be back. I, I didn't know it would be, oh, God. 14 years later when I was 31, but I, I'm glad that it came back in, in the incarceration that it did with Captain Boomerang, which I had just so much fun playing. Were, were you a DC guy growing up a little bit? I was never much of a comic book guy, if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna be honest. I had so many friends that were I was I played a lot of Warhammer. That was that was my thing. It, well, they that that was your gateway then. Okay. That was my yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was doing Lord of the Rings Warhammer. When you actually when you get the role, does is this one of the things where you, we kind of do a deep dive? To, to get into the character or do you kind of go in and be like, I want to try and do something different with this? I definitely wanted to do something different because I, I didn't know. Here's kind of how it went down. I was unaware when I auditioned for the role that it was Captain Boomerang. I had no idea. So when I when I booked it, I, I was under the impression that I was playing someone by the name of Razor. 
which is what the 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 edition sides had of, said of course that's what it would be in the notes okay <laughs> yes so I, you know and that was i just had a ton of fun with that edition and so when i booked it and it was Catherine boomer i was like oh god do i change things and i kind of reached out to them and sort of inquired if there was anything different I needed to do, considering that it was Captain Boomerang. And their response to that was that I should just, they want me to do exactly what I did in the audition playing whoever I thought Razor was. So that's kind of how that went down. And I was glad about that and went like, yeah, I, I kind of know that he's been played before in different versions of him. And they, they gave me a lot of comfort because there's a bit of a fear in that of, of misrepresenting a character that obviously people know so well and they made me feel very comfortable with taking the risks and sort of just playing him a little bit different and and just having fun with him which was really really as an actor i mean that's really all you can ever want out of the out of your bosses on a show and they, they really gave me the freedom to kind of go and do what i wanted with it which was tons of fun and you absolutely did that too man to it to very well so far from what we've seen so we Thanks. know who captain boomerang is we know who razor is who's owen mercer owen mercer i mean that's the other thing is trying to figure out who kind of this version of owen mercer is and the way he was described to me was i think Originally, I think they might have wanted someone just a little bit bigger was kind of what they had told me. But then when they saw me, they, they decided to go a different way with it. So we kind of played him like he was just this guy that had just gotten the crap kicked out of him in prison for years. And, you know, he was just the lowest level of the totem pole. And now he's been funded by this much uh, more wealthy sort of backer than he is. And he's finally got the technology to be the the big bad guy on the block. And he just relishes the opportunity to not only get his ass kicked anymore, actually do some ass kicking. And that's sort of how we played Owen in, in this sort of version of him. I think we could talk about it now because it's, it's been out there for a little bit. I think we could talk about Red Death a little bit. How much can we tease yes. about that relationship other than it just is it just a mercenary thing? Or are we going to find out maybe there's a little bit more going on there? I think to the for the most part, it is just a mercenary thing that the Red Death is is using Owen and and some of these other rogues to to do their bidding. Yeah. So we actually got a look at that Red Death suit for the first time in episode yes. two. How incredible was it to see that thing for the first time in person? Because on screen, I'm like, whoa. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, in person, all I could think about was like, man, that must be uncomfortable. <laughs> like, can you, can you see out of that? I don't think that they could very well. <laughs> and then Owen's over here. You don't, you can't see him, but he's he's over this way, and me being like, hi. I swear, I would strut in my Captain Boomerang get up and be like, oh, I'm so comfortable. Yes, and like that's the thing is that the Captain Boomerang get up is so comfortable. It's just like a, it's a tailor made jacket and like. It was a little, little chilly. And like, luckily I have a scarf. <laughs> I want to thank you guys for making that cosplay possibility so much easier in the future. For everybody. I, if, if the day comes where I get to see somebody come in as, as Captain Boomerang when I'm at a convention or something, that'll make me very happy. And I'm, I was really glad to see that they were doing something that was so accurate to the comics of what oh, yeah. Captain Boomerang wore, which was super cool to me to actually be able to play him and, and kind of look like him in a way, which was very cool. Is that the cool thing for you that you, you talk about going to cons and things like that? When you get a role like this, is it is it a little bit cooler than some other things? Because you're like, OK, when I once you're Captain Boomerang, you're Captain Boomerang for life in the eyes of certain fans. How cool is that? It's insanely cool. And it's also very it's, it was a little, little bit stressful at the same token. <laughs> of like, course. I know that you and I have discussed a previous show of mine when I was on the hundred and was doing that and like that. 
John Murphy wasn't even in the books of the hundred. So that character was so fully me. And like, there was no, no one could ever get mad at me making John Murphy. However, I wanted to make him because there is no John Murphy until there was Richard Harmon playing John Murphy. So that was, that was a lot more open. So then when you're playing someone like Captain Boomerang, that people have thoughts in their head about the mm-hmm. way that uh, he should be and the way that he should be portrayed, which I completely understand. And I can completely understand if, if like my version of him is not for everybody. Like I could completely understand that, but I'm really grateful for the openness that seemingly that the, the fans of the flash have brought to me. And, and like a lot of them really were very complimentary of it, but I also understand the other, the other way of that too. And I'm, it was just nice to get the chance to play. No doubt about that. Really quickly. I want to take a little bit of a side note on that because the 100 fans there, that is a very loyal and ve- still very active fan base and if you look at the comments on this guy's social media all these hundred fans saying oh i didn't know you were going to be on the flash now i'm going to have to start watching the flash how cool is that for you that that they're still hanging on and and they're coming to the flash because they see that you're attached to this project i mean that's got to be amazing for you i'm incredibly grateful for it i wouldn't have my the apartment that i live i wouldn't i wouldn't have the life that i have without the hundred so it's it's something that i'm still to this day and to the fans incredibly grateful for that they're still sticking around Talking to Richard Harmon, who plays Captain Boomerang on The Flash, which you can watch every Wednesday night on The CW. Richard, now that the Fiddler's in the mix, it looks like we're going to get kind of a bit of a rogue squad going on here. So th- this is something the Flash fans have been waiting for for a while on the show, myself included. So how much fun was it to kind of be a part of a team of villains and be the first one to kind of kick that off this season? It was to be the first one. I, that That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Like to be the first one was a very cool thing. Though, like the first episode of the season, it was before you even know Red Death is a thing. It's like Captain Boomerang's the first one that you mm-hmm. see as the first obstacle that you think like, oh, maybe he's just going to be someone that the Flash just knocks down and moving on to the next villain. But to stick around, kind of get the better of Flash, and just, I wouldn't say get the better of him, but like kind of end in a stalemate between it the kinda two. Kind of did though a little I bit. I got the better of him at least twice. So yeah. Timelines, <laughs> like the repeat, the repetition. Sorry, Grant. Yeah. So I think that's very cool to be the first one and to be part of the group. Like I said, because me not knowing, not being a massive comic book guy growing up, for the the showrunners and everyone, the writers and everything to kind of like made it very clear to us how important this is and this group is and what that forces without any spoilers what the flash has to do to kind of combat the numbers game of us versus him absolutely so this is the final season for a cast that's been doing this for for quite a few years now what was it like working with all of them and how was it to kind of walk in you're you're the new kid on the block in the final season of a very much beloved show that people have been working on for a long time Yes. I mean, it was so welcoming. I'll say that like for my first day was all with Grant and doing doing the the battle between him and me three different ways. And that was my first day. It was just an all day affair. And Grant was so welcoming and so awesome. Like there's a reason why a show can go nine seasons and not many can. And you have to have a great leader for a cast. And, and he embodies what it is to be a good number one. He really does. I can't, I can't say enough good things about him. Oh, I can absolutely agree with that, too. As a matter of fact, speaking of this cast, I've been around them enough to know they're a fun bunch. They're a very musical yeah. bunch, too, by the way. So do you have any fun stories from when the cameras weren't rolling that you can kind of share with us a little bit? Oh, boy. I mean, I was so focused on just trying to not mess up Captain Boomerang. <laughs> but there were so many fun, fun moments. 
I think some of the most fun moments is just was just Grant and I sitting there with like him with the just eating like pasta with the with the flash suit fully on like and the like the, the mask and everything and just eating pasta on the side of the road in the middle of Vancouver. Those were sort of surreal comical moments for me. And then I have a few photos that crew members took of the two of us that I think are pretty funny. And I think maybe when the whole thing's wrapped up, I can maybe post some of those for people to see behind the scenes a little bit. Nice. Got a little something to look forward to. I love that. Yeah. It, it makes me wonder, though, because I can I can imagine that at some point Grant's going to drop something on that suit while he's eating. What's the protocol when you're like you're in the flash suit? You, you, the bow tie pasta falls on the flash logo. Is is it a fire drill? Is is there bad? Are there bad things? Have, have you seen something like this happen? That's why they only they only serve the red the red sauce. <laughs> That's it. It's tomato based. Everything everything lunch tomato based. Everything red. That's all it is. That's all we eat on the just flash. A, just a different shade, just in case. Yeah, well, the, That's then, it. then you're wearing your your blue trench coat, and then you're you're in trouble. True, but that trench coat is easy to. I'm a professional, you know, of I'm not sure you are, of course but so are. is Grant. I don't, I don't, I never saw the man drop anything on his suit. <laughs> how, how cool was that look for you? You talked about it being a, a practical look close to the comics. How cool was that look for you for the Captain Boomerang suit? Because it was very comics accurate and the boomerangs themselves where it was that cool to just, you know, you just kind of open up the trench coat and you're like, Hey, what's yeah. Up? Jingle jangle. I mean, like we had to do quite a bit of ADR to, to fix because sometimes the, the boomerangs are just clang or we would just be in the middle of a take and a boomerang would just fall out onto the floor. And I'd be like, <laughs> of course, uh, a boomerang down. We just need to take it back to the top on this. That happened a lot was that boomerangs would just start falling out. Cause I had like 25 on me at any given time and they're, they're secure, but they're not that secure. So they would just start falling and like, ding, 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 just falling all over the ground. If I'm like doing a fight scene and I'm <laughs> punching and then it's just boomerangs all over the ground. You kind of can't drop can't those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't have that. I know that you said that you were nervous and there's there's so much great writing that happens on the show and always has yeah. been. Did you They're get a so chance? Lovely, the writers. Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely. I'm sure they are. So. I know that, you know, Captain Boomerang, he's known for his zingers. Did you kind of get to throw in a couple of ad libs there as well? Or did you kind of, were you too nervous? To, oh, you did. Okay. I did throw in quite a few ad libs and they were really, really welcoming to allow, to allow it. The one that I'm sad didn't make it in was in the first episode when they, after the, not him and his wife knocked me down and I'm getting up from behind the car and kind of in pain. And I was going up to them and I was just looking at it. And I, was, I was like, power couple. Nice. And I wanted to keep the power couple thing. And I was like, power couple, very cute. I like that. And I was like, damn it. See, now everybody knows what could have been. Kept some other ones, which was really cool. I'm trying to recall which. That's the thing is that they did such a good job writing that it became so evident to me what the ad libs would be. And that's on them is making it so clear and evident what this character's like with those zingers. Mm -hmm. When I ad libbed things, it... At this point, I don't even remember what was mine and what was theirs because they did such a good job of making it clear what he would say, mm -hmm. what type of person he is, which was really, really, that's when you're ad-libbing, that's incredibly helpful. And you had to pick up on that, though, and that's where the team aspect and the trust comes in, though, I can imagine. That's what it's all about. There you go. There you go. Before I let you go, Richard, I know that you've barely scratched the surface of what we're going to see this season on The Flash. How excited are you for fans to see what's coming? And would you love to revisit this character at some point? I would absolutely love to revisit this character. He was so much fun for me. I, I want one day for people to see the the audition tape actually for him because that's Ooh. a lot of fun. And that was too much ad-libbing. Yeah, that's like <laughs> bring it back. But I mean, they got me the role, so that's good. 
I'm very excited for myself personally to see how, cause I don't even know everything of what happens on this season. And I'm curious myself to see where they're going and how they're going to wrap up this beautiful story they've been telling for nine years. And I was just grateful to be a part of it for, for my little bit of time. See, and if you don't even know where it's going, that means it's going to be really exciting because I mean, that means they kept things really secretive. Oh, they did too. Richard Harmon, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of my sneaky fun movies that I watched in 2023 was Knights of the Zodiac, the adaptation of the anime of the same name that's very, very popular. And I know some people didn't dig it, but, you know, I had nothing to to base it off of to to compare it to because I really never saw the anime. So here's the deal. I enjoyed it, but what I enjoyed more was talking to the cast of the movie and specifically Madison Eisman, who plays Athena in the movie. Well, she's not the only character she plays, but, you know, Athena is the is the big one. So here is my conversation with Madison Eisman talking about Knights of the Zodiac. This happened on episode 469 of the Down and Nerdy podcast earlier this year. It's been about 40 years, Madison, since the original anime series. Did you familiarize yourself with the material or did you want to go in clean? Well, 40 years ago, I'm just kidding. I was not alive. <laughs> Let me tell you a tale. <laughs> Let me tell you about 40 years ago. I, I, when this was first brought to me, I had no idea what it was. But then I quickly jumped into research and found out that it never really hit in the United States. Like it did literally pretty much everywhere else in the entire world. I had a lot to catch up on, basically. But I mean, it was so fun to jump into. I always love diving into source material of, of new things, especially when it's loved by so many different people. It's exciting and it's fun because people care so much about it. But I mean, it, it was a lot. I think I had about two or three weeks to really dive in as much as I could. And it's a lot of pressure. You know, it's a it's a big role. It's not a small one. Absolutely not. It's actually a dueling role in, 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 in a way, too, because, you know, Sienna is definitely one of those most one of the most interesting characters in the story, if not the most interesting character in the story. So once you get to know more about her, what, what excited you the most about playing her? I mean, other than her costuming and hair and makeup, which was some of my favorite, you know, I think I love where she ends up and I don't want to give any spoilers, but I, I also, if we were to continue and do more movies, which is always the goal, where she will go is also very exciting to me. This is, you know, it's, it is the very beginning of this whole universe and this in the story. It's a our film is is an introduction to these characters and sort of how broad this universe is. So it's just a small taste of of what we're gonna get into. So I think that was always like the most exciting thing to me is like where it's gonna go. And I've always been a fan of like big concepts and and big stories and big characters and I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of how big it can actually get. So that's exciting to me. Oh, there's no doubt about that. When you guys see it, you'll understand exactly what she's saying. But it's got to be hard for her, though, because, you know, she has this power looming inside of her. We saw that in the trailer. But do you kind of feel like it's more difficult for her that she really basically doesn't have a choice or control over basically anything in her life? Yeah. And that's like, you know, it's such a parallel theme in our film, because at the same time, Saya, played by our, our lovely McKenyu, when when these two characters meet, they're both dealing with the same thing. They're, they're stubborn. They don't want to handle the cards that they've been dealt in life and and they're doing everything they can to possibly not but you know sort they sort of create this bond throughout where they sort of have to face their realities eventually and and do it and believe in them, themselves and believe they can do it so i mean yeah it's uh, the journey she goes on it's 
it's inspiring. And I, I always find like, I sort of have these parallels with these characters that I jump into time and time again. I'm not sure why, I don't know if it's subconscious or why I do it, but you know, she's sort of having this imposter syndrome throughout. And, you know, similarly, it's it's a big, so many people love this story and they love Athena. And so I found myself, you know, time and time again, just like, are, am I, are they sure it's me? Like, <laughs> did they did they cast well? Like, you know, and there's big shoes to fill. So, you know, I was kind of with her throughout her whole journey of filming. I think they casted pretty well. I don't, I don't think you need to worry about that at all. Thank I've seen you. it. I, 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 yeah, I think you're good. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that she has a very complicated family life. I want to start with dad, though. How special is that relationship between Sienna and her father? Uh, first of all, Sean Bean. Ah, good yes. old Sean Bean. I mean, I'm such a huge fan. I'm actually rewatching Game of Thrones right now. So I'm like re-fangirling over the fact that I already worked with him. I mean, that relationship, I just think it's so important. I think it's such a grounding part of our film. And they're some of my favorite scenes. I think the two of us together, it's one of the really only times you see them as human beings who are actually dealing with the weight of life. But uh, Sean Bean, I mean, he could read the dictionary and it would be interesting. He, He is so good. And I'm so glad he is who is telling most of the exposition in our film because it's a lot, right? It's a lot of information. And if you've never seen the original anime or manga, it's it's a lot to dive into. So the fact that Sean Bean is going to spoon feed you all of the information in our film, you're in for a treat because he does it so well. That is true. If you're going to get the information from anybody, yeah, he's, he's probably the guy <laughs> yeah, that you want yeah. to get it from. I want to read, you know, all the stuff in my life. I, if I have a biography, I want Sean Bean introducing me. Forever. Oh, for sure. For sure. But when we know that he's, he's keeping her safe for a reason because we got this army that's coming after her. So tease for us a little bit. How dangerous is are these people that are coming after her? I mean, they're pretty dangerous. They they can pretty much take whoever they want. You know, we're dealing with Cosmo, which is this all-powerful force and and power that can quite literally destroy anything in front of them. So yeah, these are not the guys that you want to get in an altercation with. And so Allman, my who's played by the lovely Sean Bean, has sort of created this fortress to keep Sienna in and keep her in hiding. And it's got these like crazy walls that come down, you know, when her Cosmo is being detected. And so it's, mm, I don't want to spoil anything, but that's all I'll say. But yeah, you don't want to mess with them. Anytime, if you're seeing this on camera, anytime she looks up and to the right, she's really oh trying God, not to, <laughs> she's really trying not to say whether it's like, there's a little sign up there saying, don't, don't do it, Madison. It's so, so hard. It's so hard <laughs> not to spoil anything. It's I know really- it is. I've seen it too. I get it. I'm trying not to do the same thing with these questions, but I do want to talk about Saya and that relationship too, because he, he's the champion that's supposed to keep her safe. And he certainly has a lot of skills. So how much can you tell us about how the two of them kind of get along initially? Because it's got to be weird meeting somebody and be like, yeah, this is you know, she's the embodiment of Athena sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, they're very parallel in in a sense. Like they they have both been dealt these cards in life. They are both stubborn. They don't want anything to do with their destiny. And so, and it's funny because they really don't enjoy each other at first at all. But, you know, sort of through them dealing simultaneously with these similar situations, they, they find a bond together and I won't say, see, now I'm looking to the right. I'm looking to the, the, the now you're going to be thinking about it, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a theme in the movie that I, 
that you never get tired of seeing, which is sort of this, not enemies to lovers. That's the wrong, that's the wrong theme, but you know, watching these two people sort of like hate each other and then sort of find some sort of sense in, in the both of each other and, and find a bond on that. And then McKenna, he's just so great. And he's such a talent and so easy to work with. And we just had a lot of fun together. Oh, that, that you could definitely tell that for sure. For sure. Uh, we have, we got some incredible a- action in this movie, Madison. I mean, just in the trailer alone, but that, like you said before, scratches the surface on this thing. So how much were you looking forward to possibly getting in on some of that? Cause you had to see some of the stuff, stuff that everybody else was doing and going, I, I got to get a piece of that. I keep telling Andy, I was like, we, Athena needs to do more. Come on. And Fonka got to do some fun stuff. And I was like, Athena can do a little more. Andy Chang, who did all of our stunts, he's incredible. He's a legend. It was so much fun to watch. And his whole team, they're just so incredible. They were able to create such a fresh, organic style of fighting that I've never really seen before in a film. It's it's very unique to to our movie. And I think it's one of the key elements in our film that makes it stand out. He's so good. He's so, so, so good. And it was so fun watching them fight. And then it's fun, you know, when you on set, there's no special effects or anything, but then like watching it all come to life. It's, it's just, it's so impressive, but yeah, I, I want to do more Andy. Let's do more Andy. <laughs> hand, hand, nudge, nudge sort of thing. You, you talk about the look and that's definitely something I wanted to get to because that was one of the wow factors for me. It was just that, that look of Athena. And again, we get like a small smidgen of that in the trailer so how impressed were you were this look and just the design of the character because it just pops so much i'm so glad it was it was very collaborative and it was a lot of conversation you know it was i think the trick with live action remakes is you want to stay true to what was done 30 years ago but also you want to bring something fresh and new and a little more grounded and just different so It was, you know, we talked a lot about if we wanted to stick with the manga where she has this like golden brown hair, or if you want to stick with the anime where she has this like vibrant purple hair, then also even the costuming, like you want to modernize it and our amazing costumers, they wanted to bring in a little more Greek mythology since it's such a driving force in our film. And even like Athena wears this bronze breastplate that has the symbol of the owl, which is Athena's symbol. You know, there's all these tiny little details that if you pay enough attention, you'll see. But I do remember the hair, the hair was a big conversation. And it was, gosh, it was one, one of the only things that I was like, guys, like, it's got it. You got to have the purple hair. It's just going to be so iconic. But, you know, they wanted it to be, you still want to make it grounded. You know, you don't want it to be ridiculous. But we did lots of like hair and makeup tests. And I remember when I first tried on the wig, Yoshi, who's been a part of St. Seiya for so many years, he started to tear up a little bit and I was like okay like come on guys like we got it then there's the right choice yeah but I honestly I think we didn't make that decision until up until like the morning of filming I remember I was with our director and they still hadn't made a decision I was like you I they have to have the wig ready in the morning and so he was like let me sleep on it I went to our hair and makeup trailer in the morning and he finally gave me the text. He said, put it on. I was like, are you sure? Cause if it goes on, like, you know, we don't go back that you make the decision. You can't really CGI out, you know, a whole wig, I guess. No. Nowadays you probably could, they can do anything now. It's pretty crazy, but yeah, it was, it was very collaborative. It was a lot of fun to sort of give my ideas of where to take the character and, and costuming and hair and makeup and Tomek and, everyone but it was all done you know with with the fans in mind I think that was important to me was to make sure they got the Athena that they would want in live action Madison Eisman thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's my favorite interview moments of 2023 here on the special edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Of course, I'm James Witham, and it was just so much fun talking to so many amazing people, as it always is. And you never know who you're going to talk to sometimes, right? You never know what's going to come across. And one of the things that I found was Marvel's Mockingbird Strikeout from a Kanye Press and or Kanye Books, I should say. And Maria Lewis, the author, got to talk to her. She's Australian. She was so much fun. And we didn't just talk about Mockingbird. We didn't just talk about Marvel stuff. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. This happened on episode 475 of the podcast. My conversation with author Maria Lewis talking about Mockingbird. And yeah, a bunch more. Maria Lewis, author, thank you so much for taking your time. What are you doing? Hi. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And um, thanks so much for for giving a shit. It's delightful to talk to people who are excited about the book. I mean, how can you not be when you've got a character like Mockingbird oh on the forefront? We'll talk about, you know, joining the Marvel world here in just a second. I actually want to talk about Mockingbird because like I, like I said, she's one of those it characters that has this like special following within the Marvel fandom. So how excited is it for you to tackle a character like this? Oh, she was like a dream character for me. I've always... One of my favorite things about Marvel broadly is that I think they have one of the best toy boxes. Like, obviously, you have all your, your characters that people are really familiar with in the MCU, your Iron Man's, your Captain America's, etc. But because they have existed for so long, the benefit of that is you have this amazing deep bank of characters that would be considered like you maybe B or C list characters compared to your mo- more well-known ones, right? Even though Iron Man would have probably be considered B or C list until the MCU really right. took off. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. So it has been something of a dream, I guess you could say to get in there and to play with some of those characters that I loved that, Every time they made an appearance, you know, whether it was, it was usually small, but even if it was just like, you know, Bobby pops up obviously a lot in West Coast Avengers. And I don't know if I necessarily would have been drawn to West Coast Avengers if I didn't know Bobby was in it. Like she was the reason I was reading that because I wanted every bit of Mockingbird I could get. And there's other characters like She-Hulk and Tigra, for instance, who are sort of within that world and Black Widow for a big stretch there in the nineties. And so I was very excited because there's this, bank of characters like x-men i think also has a bunch of really great ones lower for instance who's a pacifica mm-hmm. x-men i'm pacifica so that's a character that i was always like any little morsel of representation you're excited about but also like your jubilees your rogues and any time that there was the possibility you could pitch on something like this i was always telling myself it would never happen but like you got to roll the dice you know what i mean you might you only need one yes and so i had pitched on a whole bunch of characters and Mockingbird, I thought was going to be a long shot because I know she has a real cult fandom and obviously she popped up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So her like general fan base has expanded a little bit because of Adrian Pilecki's incredible representation of her on that show. So I was just cautiously optimistic that maybe she would be the character that I got to play with and it ended up being the case. So you're going to make me go off on my first tangent here for a second okay, because of go, what you just mentioned away. just because <laughs> what you just mentioned, you mean you mentioned Adrian Pilecki and I, I yeah, totally I agree her. with you. I loved her portrayal. Of the character, but she was there was supposed to be a spin-off of yes, Agents they of shot Shield, it. most wanted that was mm-hmm. you know killed before it was even brought out. 
So I feel like fans are going to see this and be like, finally, did you kind of have that <laughs> feeling too, where you're getting to take this care of like, okay, while it might not be TV, right? You still mm. get to finally give her the story that she deserves that she didn't get to have on television. Yeah, well, the thing with Bobby historically, not just in the comics, but also like in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you're part of an ensemble, right? So it's like you have a different character might shift through and they're leading the A-plot week to week. But generally speaking, Bobby was kind of always defined by her proximity to men. Like her first introduction in Astonishing mm. Tales, she was sort of like one of Kazar, which is such a bizarre character, one of Kazar's many hectic love interests in Spider-Man, same sort of deal. She was like, I'm no femme fatale. And, you know, that's just, it's a different time. You can't necessarily, I feel, judge things from the perspective of 2023 when it's written in, you know, 1974 or whatever. So I had always been really intrigued and enticed by the prospect of sort of trying to liberate Bobby from the context of men, right? What happens when she really does, quote unquote, strike out on her own? And some of my favorite episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., particularly obviously season two and three, are where Adrian Blakey plays Bobby and Nick Blood, who's amazing, I feel, as Lance Hunter, come into play. And Lance sort of being this problem-solving character way to fix the issue of not being able to include Hawkeye in the TV series, but them still wanting to have this ex-husband plot point, right? Which is one of Bobby's big pieces of canon. I thought was a really clever solve for that. And I loved the chemistry and the magnetism between the two of them. When they got written out of the show to branch off and have their own pilot, which they shot. And I don't know, I'm sure you have sneaky people who've, um, have flicked you a link and you've seen I it. Haven't, I-, I haven't seen it. I'm trying haven't seen it yet. Wonder Woman's another story, but I've, I've, I haven't oh. seen that one yet. Oh, I enjoyed that as well for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where it's like you have to shoot your shot, right? Like the odds sure. of most wanted could have been picked up and it gets five seasons. So them getting written out of the show would have been totally worth it. Uh, tragically, it did not. But that was one of the angles, I guess, I'd always been intrigued with in terms of Bobby. And I particularly... I love, I have eight books before this uh, that are all dealing with women who have various abilities, right? It's taking classic mythological monsters and giving them a feminist twist. So it's women who have to struggle with great power comes great responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them are villains, some of them are heroes, some of them are just in between. But the women who exist within the Marvel universe who, for the most part, are not super powered, there are obviously whole comic runs where Bobby is or has, you know, enhanced abilities. Those characters really intrigued me as well because it is this play field of like gods and monsters and how do you, not to quote the dark universe, but, you know, how do you operate through that world and like what kind of skills do you have to develop? And you're exceptional by anyone's standards, but yet there's a guy over here who can fly and there's a chick over here who's like a brilliant lawyer but can also turn green. And so that sort of juxtaposition of being exceptional and ordinary at the same time within an incredulous world, I think was such a rich playing field and just having the real estate to spend, you know, 85,000 words with Bobby Morse. Like I would have read any book. Uh, I have read every book with Bobby because I love this character and, and I just wanted to sort of try and balance that expecta- expectation of her legacy on the page and the screen and like pay homage to that, be respectful of that, pay tribute to it, while also hopefully trying to take the reader somewhere new and take Bobby fans somewhere maybe they hadn't been before. How do you kind of make that balance though? Because you've got 
<laughs> all that history. You've got all that canon, and we know how people feel about their canon, right? But then mm. you've also got Maria over here, and you've got <laughs> someone who's written like like almost a hundred Who's Afraid books and created so many characters. <laughs> how do you balance the? I want to bring a little Maria into this with also saying, okay, but I have to remember there's canon over here. Well, it's really interesting because this year in particular, like 2023, I have three books coming out that are all so incredibly different from each other. Obviously you have this Mockingbird novel, which is in the world of superheroes. I have a slasher called The Graveyard Shift, which is like a millennial scream coming out and a crime, a murder mystery crime book. And then I have an Assassin's Creed novel coming out at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So they're all incredibly different. And it had been sort of interesting, I guess, because with the Supernatural Sisters series, which includes Who's Afraid and The Witch Who Caught a Death and stuff like that, that spanned eight books and many years and various short stories and whatever. And so you have this fan base that's really familiar with you. But then my primary job is as a screenwriter on film and television. And so there's an audience that comes with me from that who are familiar with my work through episodes that they've watched or things that they engage with on socials. And then there's things that I'm just passionate about like geek culture you know what I mean like I'm covered in pop culture tattoos I really live my like wear my pop cultural passions on my sleeve quite literally so it ha you have all these different audiences related to you that are coming to this book but I would say majority of the audience probably 85% of it have no clue who I am and have never read anything I've written before and are coming to this because it's Marvel because it's Marvel heroines which is a line that's like really has a very passionate fandom mm -hmm. and because it's Bobby and so it's a combination I think of of trying to balance well understanding that you're probably never going to successfully appease everybody and sort of letting letting that pressure go letting that expectation go and trying to write the story that you feel best serves the particular narrative that you've set out to tell the narrative that you've been green lit to tell, because you have to go through a very extensive pitching process with Marvel approving at each stage of the, of the pitching journey. So you can't just suddenly go off reservation and be like, surprise, there's dinosaurs now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? Oh my goodness. I would love that so hard, but um, yeah, somebody hired me for that book, but just being really conscious of trying to balance those two things. So Bobby's not going to ride a Velociraptor now. I'm now I'm. It's just totally ruined for me now, and I I, I can't I can't do it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like she has the Chris Pratt Jurassic World character. She would be a very good you know substitute there. Oh no Her doubt. Her in blue going off on adventures. That would be fun. That would be fun. I, I would read that. That would be fun. Hello, mm -hmm. if anybody's listening. <laughs> studio crossover that literally nobody wants but you know the two of us the two of us are well i mean there's it. an audience right there then that said we'll just do that exactly <laughs> so so maria it's it would have been really easy right to, to take a novel like this you've got the marvel logo on the cover to to lean into comic book aspects of things like the super soldier serum which which you mm -hmm. have in this book mm -hmm. and things like that but but i feel like at its core to me anyway this is really kind of a cross between like an espionage thing and female empowerment as well. Did you mm. want to kind of give it a little bit different of an angle in that way? Comics have deep meaning. I don't want to say they don't, but did you want to give it mm. a little bit more of a different spin on what we've normally seen from Bobby? Yeah, I think also I was really interested, again, like because she, in this version of the story and the pitching process of this, she was, uh, it was specific that she had to have no superpowers per se, right? So, for me to be able to ground the audience and ground the stakes, I wanted to try and keep her a little bit separate from that world. I also thought the canon, you can tell I've just 
been obsessing over across the Spider-Verse. The canon event of her and Clint getting divorced is, I think, something that if there's one thing people know about Bobby, it's probably that. That's probably in the top three things they know. So I really wanted to open with that and then immediately leave it. So we're subverting expectations of, you know, if you're expecting this to be all about that, it's not necessarily, it's about the aftermath of that, right? And this idea of essentially trying to do a superhero divorce book, which is, you know, some of my favorite comics of all time, are very adult themes within the package of the superhero mechanism and the superhero device. And so I was thinking about things like Out of Sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie, which is one of my favorite films of all time, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and this idea of a lot of tradecraft and a lot of spycraft mixed with chemistry and interplay between characters, but also wanting to move Bobby away from a place that audiences felt they were very familiar with her in, which wasn't just the emotional relationship with Clint, but also the physicality of California. And so I looked at a few different options of physical settings and what I needed the story to service, this essential mystery where you could put all of Bobby's strengths and all of her weaknesses on display to really dissect and dive into. And Oxford was an exciting option (laughs) for me. I, I mean, it's just truly like one of the most interesting settings because there's so much rich history there, but there's also so much fascinating modern history there as well. And so many like different little options to play with without getting into spoiler territory, but it also brilliantly puts her in the backyard of strike and meant that I could tap into the ring. Some of those characters that people might have been not as familiar with, not just Lance, but some of the other strike entities as well. And try and take people somewhere that they haven't been before. Like my previous books, the Supernatural Sister series, each of those is set in a very specific geographical location, whether that's Berlin or whether that's, you know, Sydney, Australia, or whether that's Boss Castle in Cornwall or Dundee in Scotland. It was about doing a little bit of literary tourism, you know, me going there and experiencing those places and to speaking to people who lived there, researching them and making them feel lived in. And I wanted to do that with this story as well. I loved the idea of werewolf by night when that dropped, like Mm -hmm. the adaptation, I should say, but this idea of a one shot where you're taking something that people feel like they really know, know very well, and then moving it somewhere unexpected and doing something unexpected with it. And this being just like a little capsule story. And that's what I was, that was my intent with this, whether I succeed or not is really up to the readers, but that's what I was essentially trying to do. No doubt. And and obviously this is more about Bobby than anything else. I feel like this book is, but you still have, you still have a mission. You still have mm. a goal. And I feel like what you have is more of like a target than a villain. Mm. Like you, mm. you kind of, you kind of say, okay, well, every story, the Marvel story has to have a villain and you kind of do. So what made you decide to kind of go the route that you did of finding, I'm, I'm just going to say the word target because I don't want to spoil anything, obviously, but yeah, yeah. How, what what made you decide to go kind of that route? How much can you tell us without spoiling anything? Well, Bobby's backs, again, this is like the challenge of trying to balance things that are canon and what parts of canon you can keep, what parts you can't, you can change, et cetera, because obviously things get updated, things change in retrospect, like either, you know, super sexist or super racist or super whatever. And so you're constantly trying to stay faithful to the origins of the character while updating it for a modern audience and for a modern lens, which is what, for me, the best characters do, my favorite characters. I'm a big fan of the first masked superhero ever, the Phantom. Mm -hmm. I worked on 
audio documentary about the Phantom. And what was so fascinating about that character, even though for the time that character was very progressive compared to other characters, it was something that it was this white man in the jungle, right? And it was really fascinating to watch how that character evolved and how that character then became essentially the Superman for Papua New Guinea, for India, for all these countries that didn't really get to see versions of themselves represented in comics. And so I'd always been really intrigued by that idea. And that was something that everything I approach, especially with legacy characters like this, it's sort of very similar with the Assassin's Creed book as well, is like, what is the thing that I can bring? And what is the thing that I love about the source material and how can I infuse a little bit of myself into it right and in the case of Bobby and the story and the target slash villain if you will it was being aware that there'll be people reading this book who have no idea who Bobby Morse is and might not be familiar with her backstory outside of you know maybe one or two appearances right so again you're trying to balance people who have lots of knowledge with people who may have none Mm -hmm. and so I was trying to find ways to include people into the story rather than exclude them so there's easter eggs in there obviously if you are very familiar with who she is but if you're not there were still pieces that tied back to her origins and I was trying to layer in some meaning there about the choices that we make when we're really young and really ambitious and, you know, you want everything right now all the time and then how those choices and how those decisions can be colored as an adult when you're looking back and, you know, the things, you know, it's, it's like your first relationship compared to your fifth or your sixth, Mm -hmm. right. Or like how you raise your first kid compared to your fourth or your fifth or whatever, you know, just the things that, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. <laughs> and so no doubt. Of trying to, yeah. Like trying to, trying to layer that idea in, in the context of Bobby, in the context of who she was as a woman, as a scientist and as a spy and trying to sort of balance each of those simultaneously all the time. I feel like I've said balance 25 times as if I'm in Cirque du Soleil or something, but you're it was to, like, you're just trying to center us, make it, exactly. make it more Zen a little bit. <laughs> Which is uh, this Zen Zen Australian? You're you're the first Zen Australian ever. <laughs> well, I think you might be the first person ever in the history of my life to call me Zen, but let's roll with it. <laughs> you set me up for it. <laughs> Speak, oh, speaking yeah, of, speaking of setting things up, though, because mm. I feel like you, you talk about changes, and I feel like everybody in their own story, you have to make changes to certain things. How do you set a reader who's familiar with Bobby and and her story, and is just mm. this huge fan of hers? How do you set them up for something in a story like this where you're like, okay, this is going to be a little different. Don't freak mm-hmm. out. How do you set <laughs> a hardcore fan up for something like that so you don't have people screaming at you on, on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that? Well, I feel like people are always going to scream at you regardless. <laughs> so you've just got to like, you know, peace out and just like make your Zen closure with it or whatever. But in this particular instance, I'm a massive fan. I love to love stuff. And I particularly, I love all the characters that are in this book. I asked if I could use them because I love them and because I'm a fan of them. Maria Hill, Tigra, She-Hulk, even a little like sneaky daredevil appearance, Lance Hunter, obviously, Mm -hmm. other characters who show remain nameless, but pop up in various instances. Hawkeye as well, big fan. But it was trying to sort of come to it from the perspective of like, 
I've been that person. I've been reading these books and these stories forever. I'm a massive She-Hulk fan, for instance. And I remember reading this book that came out, I want to say it was like 2014 by Marta Acosta, which was another Marvel novel. And it was called The She-Hulk Diaries. And I remember at the time uh, loving She-Hulk on the page, but just feeling like that book really took it to another level. It was very adult and it would, the themes were very contemporary and it was sort of like dealing with her as a woman and a corporate entity and dealing with her as like a, you know, somebody like as an adult, like as somebody Mm -hmm. with sexual agency and career drive and all these different things. And so that was very much like a touchstone for me because I was just like, I loved that book and I loved what it had the capacity to do. But also I have read so much of the stuff and I feel like lots of, for instance, Chelsea Kane did such an incredible job on her run. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. She's already done that. And therefore I'm giving the true fans nothing if I'm just repeating that beat. So it was about trying to take a journey that felt gentle. (laughs) You know, you're taking somebody off the beaten path, but you're holding their hands while you're doing it. And I'm sure there'd be people who would be frustrated that there's not more Hawkeye in it or there's not more whatever. But the reason I love Bobby is because of Bobby, not necessarily who she's in a relationship with. And the reason I love her is because of how smart she is and how compassionate she is and how empathetic she is and how cunning she is. And like, all of those different elements to her that make her special and have made her such a fascinating character historically, those are sort of the things that I wanted to see. And it's not necessary. You won't pick up on all of them. And like the science has to be balanced with the physicality and the physicality has to be balanced with the character stuff and your witty banter and all those things, but trying to have a really even mix of the core elements that make Bobby who she is while at the same time, moving the story somewhere we haven't necessarily been before, which again, geography really helped with that, but so did choosing certain characters and even things like the the book opens at the Academy Museum in LA, which is, there've been lots of stuff with Bobby set in California, but I was like, okay, what are the set pieces we have seen with her? Where are the places she has been physically and interacted with physically? And then where's somewhere new I can take her. And at that particular point of writing at the Academy Museum had only just opened up. So I was like, okay, cool. I feel like we haven't had that many stories that have, you know, had her riding (laughs) the shark from Jaws into Mm -hmm. a, into a crowd of baddies, you know, just like relatable stuff. That was definitely really fun. And and if what she said didn't get you jazzed for this book already, then, then I don't know. I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you, honestly, but I I feel like they're going to be very mad at me uh, destroying (laughs) half of their museum on the page, but oh well. (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't actually happen in real life. Yeah. Before I let you go, Maria, we, we you talked about Assassin's Creed a couple of times now. How much can you tease for us about what's going to be coming from that? Because, I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of Assassin's Creed fans that are that are just mm. itching for more Assassin's Creed stuff. Yeah, it really blew me away, honestly. Every time I feel like I have a grasp of fandom, again, as mentioned, because I'm in it and I work in that space, something like the Assassin's Creed novel comes along and the announcement of that just, like, shut down my phone for <laughs> for like three days you forget you don't forget but you do kind of forget when you're really in it I'm a huge fan of Assassin's Creed I think anybody who loves storytelling loves and respects Assassin's Creed because of the world and I also love I guess I don't want to say alternate history but things where there are stories woven in and around and amongst historical stuff that we know already historical events And so obviously this ties in with the upcoming Assassin's Creed Mirage and the main character of that game. 
his mentor, Roshan, is the main character of this novel. So it's someone that you've had glimpses of in the games before. But again, similar to Bobby, it's about spotlighting that character, giving them a whole platform to really you know, get to shine and get to understand some of her backstory, get to understand why she joined the Brotherhood in the first place, the things that are important to her, why she is the way that she is. Yeah, I've just, I've honestly really enjoyed the process. I love working with Ubisoft. I've worked on a game with them for the past few years, not Assassin's Creed, a different project. And just the amount of time and effort and energy they put into research and they put into specificity as a storyteller, it's just like a dream come true that you have that much breadth, I guess you could say. It's very hard to talk about without spoilers as I'm yammering around subjects. (laughs) Well, I I can see them lording over us right now somewhere (laughs) over in the distance saying, now stop, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Maria Lewis, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for the great questions. Of course, how could I go through this entire episode of Best Interview Moments of the year and not talk about Comic-Con. Yes, Comic-Con was a little bit different this year, but that doesn't mean that there weren't some fun interviews to be had. As a matter of fact, there was a new audio drama or audio fantasy series from Audible called Third Eye that I got a chance to talk to some of the members of the cast and the creator herself, Felicia Day. So instead of just giving you one bit or a little bit of that, I'm going to give you the whole thing from episode 491 of the Down and Nerdy podcast from the Third Eye Press Room at Comic-Con. Here's my interview with the cast and creative team behind Audible's Third Eye. If you're looking for a new scripted podcast to try out, Third Eye is available right now from Audible on Amazon. It's Felicia Day's big, big project that maybe you've heard about and maybe you haven't. I've got, there. I've got a few episodes in now. It's a really cool fantasy story that's got some, you know, fourth wall elements to it as well. And at Comic-Con, I got a chance to sit down with Felicia and some of the cast and creative minds behind Third Eye to talk to them about this thing. And actually, the first, and it was a roundtable discussion. And the first question asked of Felicia was about, you know, why she wanted to tell the story in this format. And she kind of dove into how she's been with this project for a while. So this project was my dream TV project, actually, and I, I tried to sell it in 2015. It was my follow-up to other things I've done, and it didn't happen to sell, and it was very heartbreaking because I had put everything into it. But the wonderful thing is that I got the opportunity to talk to Audible about doing it, and they decided to do it, and they were like, you're doing 10 episodes, which was such an incredible gift. And because it was happened to be over COVID, I wrote pretty much everything myself so you know when you're writing 10 episodes of essentially television I made it exactly what I the way I wanted to make it and I will say that you know having been a part of a torturous development uh, process through Hollywood over and over again this was an incredible experience and it's exactly the way I want it to be so you know me when I get a chance to ask a question I'm always going to ask about the characters nobody if nobody else has yet so I asked Felicia about her main character What's your favorite thing about Laurel? My favorite thing about Laurel is the arc that she goes through. The reason I wanted to tell the story was I didn't want to do something fantasy like. I wanted to talk about something fantastical, but I also want to talk about a failed prodigy. I was a violinist when I was a kid. I was a prodigy in that. And I was also kind of a prodigy in the internet world because I was so early. But with that kind of overachievement at a very early age, you kind of can't ever live up to the expectations that people have for you. And having that sort of crushing self-doubt and not really valuing yourself for who you are was something 
something I really wanted to talk about. And so I was able to put that in this very common trope of all the genre stuff that I love, which is the chosen one. Um, somehow, you know, you're anointed to be the one to save humanity and what, or supernatural attitude, supernatural world. And what if you fail? How do you live with yourself? How do you live at all? And how do you heal yourself in a way? And that's what I wanted to talk about. So that's what I love about Laurel is this journey I take her through and the fact that it parallels a lot of the healing I've done personally in my life. So one of the next questions for Felicia was if she wrote any of these characters with the voice already in her head and mind. And I thought she gave a couple of really good answers here. I mean, I definitely wrote a part for Will Wheaton because he's one of my favorite collaborators. He's so incredible in this part. I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard him in. And it's also heartfelt. I, all the people who are in the cast, except for, I think, one person was a personal friend of mine. And that one person, who's London Hughes, blew me away. So my friend Jonah Ray, um, who I've worked on with many projects with, he came in and did the vocal direction because I've worked with him on camera and we worked so well together. I was like, can you direct this for me? And I said, we have one of the main parts uncast. And it's my best friend. So it's one of the most important parts. And I just have this idea of this, you know, hotness, you know, British girl. And like, I don't know somebody like this. And he's like, oh yeah, I know this girl who I did stand up with. And I watched 15 seconds of a YouTube video of her stand up and London Hughes just, I fell in love with her. If you meet her, you're gonna fall in love with her too. She's a star and she's one of the sweetest, most talented people. And she embodies hot mess in the best way. So yeah, everybody, I mean, of course, I've always wanted Neil Gaiman to do the narrator, but you never know. Thank goodness everybody was able to make time to do the part. And honestly, it's a, it's a dream cast. Everybody just brings the characters to life in ways I could never even imagine. Third Eye does have a very interesting villain, so I wanted to ask Felicia a little bit about Tybus and learn about that side of the story as well. Talk about your villain a little bit, Tybus. Was there any specific inspiration behind that character? Well, again, we have the chosen one against the big bad, right? And these prophesized characters who take over, you know, all of our fantasy and sci-fi tropes, right? Christopher Judge uh, plays that part, and it's because I loved him in God of War so much. Of course. He's, and he's such an incredible performer and actor in person. So I was like so thrilled when he agreed to do it because you know, it's an audio, you know, it's a it's an audio project. Like it's different. I'm just so thrilled. And you know, at the same time, everybody had to be funny. And it's really hard being the biggest badass, evil person and also be funny. And he nails it every step of the way. So I'm really excited for hit people to hear him play this character. Uh, again, like the style of the project, it's a comedy fantasy, but it's not sketch. Nobody's playing a sketch character. These are real characters, real stakes, real life or death uh, circumstances. And that's what I wanted to imbue in the project. This next question was a very interesting one because, you know, with Felicia, there's going to be Easter eggs and third, fourth wall breaking and stuff like that. Somebody asked, you know, how aware are these characters of our world or how much are they a part of our world as we know it? So basically there are... The world building is very deep because I'm into world building and we didn't really, we don't even get to explore but the tip of an iceberg of the world, uh, which is really interesting. But um, we stay in our world, but basically there's a supernatural world that's secret among us. And like I said, like there's a, you know, an unhoused person might be, uh, you know, a legendary Russian folklore god or something like that. So everybody exists, all the world, all the creatures and people from folklore and, and fantasy exist, but they're hidden amongst our world. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I want people to listen to this and then drive down the street and be like, oh, I wonder if that psychic shop is a front for a fairy. You know, I really want to have, bring magic to the world that we have around us versus escape into a different world. That's a, you know, this one is all about grounding 
in reality. And that kind of is reflected with the soundtrack. Like most of the song, uh, songs, which are amazing, are from the 60s and 70s, you know? So it really is, I wanted a place and a time of, you know, San Francisco with that kind of vibe, uh, that hippie vibe. I wanted that to be embodied in, uh, in the world. So you heard Felicia talking about London Hughes a couple of minutes ago who plays Sybil. Well, yes, I did get a chance to talk to her in the roundtables for Third Eye. And the first question to her was, what was it like to voice such a fun character? And yeah, you're about to fall in love with London Hughes. All right, check it out. It was very easy to voice her because I am also a fun character. So literally, <laughs> it was just me. I did not actually have to change her voice in any way. It was just myself, high energy, so sassy. I'm funny. So yeah, it was a joy to, to be the voice of Sybil. <laughs> Since this is Laurel's best friend, of course I'm going to ask London about the relationship between the two characters. Talk about the relationship between her and Laurel a little bit, because I feel like everybody's got their ride or die, and I yes. feel like that's kind of what she is. Yeah, so Laurel and Sybil, they love each other. They are ride or die, but like... Sybil kind of finds that Laurel's quite annoying sometimes. Sybil just wants to live her best life and, you know, steal some money, get, up, get into some hijinks, you know, have a good time. And Laurel, I guess she's been through a lot because she thought she was the chosen one and now she's not. And she's in this, not depression, but she's in this weird space where Sybil was still living her best life despite being in that weird space with Laurel. So they clash on some things. But ultimately, Sybil's very loyal and that's her girl. And she's going to help her. And she's going to, if she needs a ride or die, she's that girl so I love their relationship and it's and it's me as a person I'm very loyal so again I don't know how Felicia wrote this character as me when she didn't know me at the time but yeah Sybil is basically she has every all the moral compass of Sybil how fierce and sassy and confident she is but also how loyal and forgiving she is yeah I feel like it was so easy to be her and it was a dream to work with Felicia and Felicia doesn't know this, but I really wanted her to be my friend in real life. But it was so hard because she was so busy being a mom. And I understand. She didn't want to go for drinks with me. But I was just like, is this real? Are we really friends? And now I realize we are. She loves me to pieces. So that's great. <laughs> I also got a chance to ask London if she liked how this kind of series kind of blended the fantasy and reality elements together. Did you kind of love that this, I feel like this show blends the fantasy and reality mm -hmm. aspects of, of life a lot. Did you kind of like that part about the show? Yeah, it's so modern. Like all the references, obviously there's references for you like diehard fantasy stands, but also there's like references for people that watch Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Like it's definitely <laughs> modern, but in a way that's palatable and funny and, and, and then it's got the fantasy, which is in the way that's like old school, but then it's like a nod to the culture. And then she just like weaves in her own real life. It's just very relatable. And it was easy for me, even though I'm not admittedly, you know, a, a strong, strong nerd person, nerdy person. As someone who's an outsider, I was like, oh, this is very cool. Like I was very enthralled by the whole world of it and how much attention to detail that she has. When Felicia wrote this eight years ago, so she knows all the characters like that she knows their backstory what would happen what wouldn't happen their their names their full names like she told me my full i don't even remember my full name i'm like i'm sybil the fairy she's like no you're sybil i'm like okay sybil the fairy so she really like and i love that which made it so easy to work with her and to have fun with these characters because she really knew this world and I felt like being civil, I really, I could really feel and I knew the world myself, especially when you hear it. Oh my God, the soundscape of it all is insane. 
So, yeah, I think this could be really huge, guys, honestly. I mean, London Hughes is in it, and she is amazing. So I feel like it's going to be a very, very... It's so different to anything that's out right now, and I think people are going to get addicted. They're going to be obsessed with this one. I'm very excited. So I was really lucky to ask London yet another question, and I asked her if there was another character that she liked working with on this series, and yeah, boy, was there ever. Other, other than Laurel, was there a particular character, scene partner, that you really liked working with on this one? Because I've got a couple from the first episode, but I want to hear what you think. Okay, Will Wheaton. Like, oh, there it yeah, is. Yeah, so we yep. actually got to do our scenes together, and in a lot of it, we our characters are... We hooked up and he's still into me and like we have history and I find him annoying now but I kind of also kind of like him but anyway when we were acting and doing our scenes I could see his face we were in opposite booths but we could see each other and we'd be arguing he'd be shouting at me and screaming I'll be like will we and screaming at me like this is so much fun like I didn't expect this it's a Tuesday so um it was very surreal at that moment and he was really fun to work with but Felicia's so good at being Laurel she's so good at bringing the character to life that she made me be a better actor because she really she really was her and so yeah bouncing off of her was great it was so much fun and then essentially having a director come in like you do a take and say they have to climb a mountain and you'd be like he'd be like okay so you say this line as if you're climbing a mountain and you're like how Am I going to say a line as if I'm, you're like, and then you like practice and freestyle speaking, but being, you know, out of breath. And then you're like, can I take, and it's like, try it this way. And then you try a bit faster, but a bit more out of breath. And like just that process as a creative was so much fun to do. Like, when do you ever get to do that? So yeah, it was just like a party. Every day I came in and I was happy. I was pretending to fight demons or like do spells and whatever's happening and yeah it was very surreal but i loved it it was yeah it was a lot of fun finally i got a chance to sit down with director jonah ray rodriguez for third eye and one of the first questions to him was if what he you know did he listen to anything as research before he came onto the project yeah i listened to like um i mean i love there's like a, a radio cast recording of um lord of the rings which is really good and I love uh, like listening to old like Twilight Zone radio episodes. Those are really really rad, and and they do a lot of that. They do like a lot of that stuff. And like there's something like I the, the audiobook I've listened to the most in my life is uh, Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, and that is like a thing where he's like so good at like kind of like when he starts talking about certain old bits and then talks about like the audience reaction and the feeling of like where like the physical space, and then in between chapters it's like nice banjo music. That like I like thought about all the things I liked about audio stuff and like just in like like oh, the music like uh, like you know like right here should be this kind of thing and the way it fades in and the way it kind of pre transition and all those like old radio shows do that a lot too which is like so great and you know it's like oh like this person has to be far away but they're too far away but like it's like you know yeah and I remember a long time ago I went to like Disney World and they had that was the first time I heard like 3D audio and it was like in maybe like '92 or something like that. But I remember like sitting and then like someone like walking in and the whole panning audio thing and I like I was just like I was like we gotta do a ton of that stuff. <laughs> is that possible? Is it is, is that gonna take up a lot of your time? And like they're like it's 2023. It's easy. <laughs> so one of my favorite things about Third Eye is the fact that Neil Gaiman is the narrator and he's so amazing at it. So I had to ask Jonah about directing Neil Gaiman. How much fun is it to direct Neil Gaiman and how much fun was it working with him in that role? Because that was one of my favorite things about the first episode. It's like, it was like, what, what am I going to say? I'm just like, you know, I'm just a joke <laughs> boy. 
you know, that like has like showed up and stuff here and there. Like I was like, and I'm talking to like one of the foremost like storytellers of like the Western world, you know, and like I'm, and like, and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm sure he'll be fine. And he's very funny and very like, you know, affable, and, but he's very serious with like, it was just that thing. I'm like, okay, I'll let him go. But like, I was like, okay, you could be a little funnier here. Actually, pull back and go more dry and you'll gain a style. And that was kind of, and then there was like, you know, I told him this, I was like, oh, try it like this and add this line. And he was like, oh, that's funny. And then like, um, I did it again. And like, and then he was just like, that's not funny at all. Like, it was just like, <laughs> and was like, uh, like and then of course, my, my, like coming in, coming out my self-esteem remained the same but there was a big spike in the middle of it awesome awesome so you could talk about saving the best for last and again i said these were in no particular order but i'd be lying if i said this wasn't either my favorite conversation one of my most favorite conversations of the year i got a chance to talk about superman and lois with wally parks who of course plays john henry on the show or at least he did yeah, that's that's a whole thing. Hey, I'm not going to get into the whole rant again because I've already ranted about this once, about all the casting changes that they had to make and all the, 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 the people that were cut from the show to get one more final season on the CW. I'm sure I'll be ranting about that again at some point as we get closer to the actual premiere. But just the way he talks about John Henry and being a family man, and this happened at the beginning of this past season of Superman and Lois, by the way. So there's really not going to be any spoilers or anything to be had from this interview. So just keep that in mind as you're listening. This happened on episode 460 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. My conversation with Wole Parks talking about Superman and Lois. Wole Parks, John Henry Irons himself. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh, man, feeling really, really good, especially excited for this season, too. So John Henry and Nat, they're kind of slowly, they've slowly built their lives in Smallville. As this season starts, do you kind of feel like they finally feel like members of this community? I, I think they do. At least I hope so. I, you know, what, I think that's the whole idea is like we last season was about, OK, trying to figure things out, trying to reconcile the idea of where they came from with where they are now. We've accepted that, you know, Superman's good on this world. Lois exists. She's not the Lois we know, but like, you know, she's, she's, she's there. So now it's like, okay, now what do we do? How do we have lives now going forward? And I think that's going to be an interesting thing about for us this season, like our relationship, relationships with other people. I'll tell you this, that uh, he's a single dad and, and she's a teenager and she ain't going to listen. I was going to say that. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you about that next because I was, you know, does this mean if you're being more comfortable, does this mean we're going to see John Henry being more of like the dad this season, doing normal dad things, being worried about his daughter? You do. And that's the funny part. Actually, to be honest, it was kind of weird shooting some of those scenes because like I'm so used to like, you know, it being like intense and like, you know, we got to do this. We got to stop Superman. We got to fight this villain. And then it's just like, okay, you got to be a dad. You got to have this talk. She's not listening. Those kind of things. So it is funny. You get to see the whole gamut. So a little bit more comedy with John Henry this time, but also a little bit more intensity. And I mean, maybe start dating. Would that be something that, uh, how's he going to deal with that? I, I, you know, that's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's, I know it's such a cliche. It's like, it's like, you know, the daughter starts dating. So how does the father react to it? I'm going to say if she ends up dating somebody, it'll be, int- I, I would be curious to see how John Henry handles anything because I think the interesting thing about him is, you know, and his lowest obviously like we said has passed away so he's never been a single dad before right in my mind the way i interpret it is that she was the one who would take care of all those things you know like nat could go to her for that kind of advice and whatnot so he's not that like he loves her he, he cares about her deeply but he doesn't know how to handle those things on his own so it's to see him juggle those those uh you know going forward it's going to be going to be interesting girl dad life can be tough for sure so i so oh, that's yeah. 
I, I, I totally get that. So I feel like we've been waiting to find out more about the John Henry of the current timeline that you're in right now, too. Is, is that something we could finally start exploring this season? Oh, 100%. Especially, you know, uh, like uh, hopefully the fans know already uh, at the end of season two, it was teased that Bruno Mannheim's going to play a big role. And he's the guy who killed the John Henry of this earth. So we're going to get into a ton of that stuff. We're going to get into a lot of his backstory. This John Henry, my John Henry, is going to learn about him as well, learn about other people. And I'll tell you as a tease, that's going to really kick off in uh, episode four. Episode four is where we really start getting a heavy John Henry stuff. And it's going to get intense pretty quickly. We'll say that. It's funny because you just keep leading me into the next thing that I'm going to ask you about. I want to talk about Bruno Mannheim. As a matter of fact, no spoilers, like you said, but how is Bruno Mannheim different from some of the other villains that we've seen so far in the show? And talk about Chad Coleman, what he brings to the role, because, I I mean, he's incredible. Oh, yeah, no, I love Chad. Like, Chad and I actually met doing a show called All American a couple years ago. So so I just just like Chad's energy in general, because Chad, Chad's very cerebral. You're going to like, you ask him a question, then you're going to get like this long answer that kind of goes all over the place. But it, it makes oh, sense. Oh, I know. Trust much. me. <laughs> oh, you broke his Yes. So that's the thing. He brings this sort of gravitas to this. Like, uh, unlike, you know, the other villains we had, you know, we had um, Ali Alston last year, and then obviously me and Talro or whatever, but really more Talro in season one. Like, you have these superpowered villains. Bruno doesn't have any powers. Bruno is a man who is on a mission. And he has passion, he has dedication. And that's the thing, like, that can be really dangerous. I mean, there, there's a reason that he's become the head of Intergang. There's a reason that they're all lead, they're all following his lead. So you're going to see him get kind of ruthless. You're going to see how he came to power. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting season. There's a whole lot of dangerous that's coming for sure. And, and fans will see that coming up on full display. 100%. I do want to talk about something else, though, because as I was watching the trailer, when I talked about the first trailer, when it came out, it says I said to myself, it seems like this is going to be a difficult season for Lois. I don't know why, but it just I feel that in my bones. And even though, like you said, John Henry's, you know, he's kind of moved on. He's realized that this isn't his Lois and things like that. Talk about how emotional this story is going to be for basically everyone and for John, because that connection still has to kind of be there. It does. And that's the thing. You're right. This is going to be interesting season. I think, you know. One thing I'm really praising, I, in general, I praise like Todd Helping, our, our, our first showrunner, and Brent Fletcher, who's now joined him, their co-showrunners. The fact that he's trying to really ground the show. His, his, his tagline is sort of like, how do you take a man that fly and ground him? And so that's why it's always been about family. It's been like, you know, that's something that we can all understand as people. Like, I can't relate to somebody who can like jump over a building and like, you know, literally mm-hmm. like pick up bridges and all that. I, I don't know what that's like. Right. But you can understand the idea of love and caring about people and all those things. So that's what I think the show does really, really well. And you're gonna see that this season, I think they're taken into a, a, a area which I don't think many superhero shows have gone before. And, and I really think that, and I hope that people in audiences connect with it. I think it's a storyline that, you know, a lot of people have gone through and and hopefully they'll they'll understand what we're trying to do with it, but we'll see. Uh, I, you know, I just, I just hope we have, like I said, our fans have been amazing and and hopefully they stay along for the ride and they find out. Very well put. We're talking to Malay Parks, who, of course, is playing John Henry Irons, as usual, on season three of Superman and Lois, which is going to come back on March the 14th on The CW. Now, Willay, we've gotten to see John Henry in full hero mode, but he's also had to kind of balance that with getting used to the whole new world, like you said, whole new way of life. Do you think he's still finding his footing 
as a hero? Oh, as a hero. I, 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 that's interesting. I, I don't think he's finding his footing as a hero because I think for him it's about selflessness. Like, you know, and that's how what anyone I think, you know, could connect to. I, it's interesting. When I first got cast, you know, I didn't know I was John Henry Irons. There were dummy sides, you know, like they said something sure. generic name, you know, Brad Smith or whatever. But I, the way I read it, I, I, I could tell it was sort of like a Lex Luthor kind of thing. And that's why, you know, he was Captain Luthor in the beginning. So I came at that from that aspect, like a very selfish kind of man, like it's all about him. And then when Todd called me and said, no, you're actually going to be John Henry Irons, I had to flip everything because that's not a selfish character. Right. You know, and, and the whole reasoning behind him of like, you know, like trying to avenge his, you know, the death of his wife and all the, you know, the, the his earth and trying to protect people here. So I had to flip him from being selfish to selfless. So I think he's already there that 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 the hero is fine, but I think his journey is just going to be sort of truly letting go and being able to move on because he's he's realized this is he's accepted that this is his new reality and the superman is is good this is lois is different lois or whatever but i don't think he's fully accepted his past and what happened to it i think there's a little bit of trauma there i think he still blames himself in some ways and i think we're going to see him this year really kind of struggle with that and hopefully gets to the other side and, and can really truly just immerse himself in the world and just have a new life so do you feel like maybe it's more about acceptance rather than atonement at this point? Yes, that's what I feel like. I, I have to be because like it, it, he tried to atone and that didn't work because Superman's alive. So then yeah. what do you do? You know, so so you have to like if that was his whole mission and suddenly you take it away, that's your life's purpose. And suddenly it's like, OK, your life's purpose is gone. What do you do? And yeah. at some point, I, you know, I believe you just have to accept the past as a way to move forward. So, yeah, that's going to be his big journey. He's he's it's a different level this year and, and it's going to be cool to see where, where it goes. Well, I can't wait to get your reaction to this one, because we've seen that, of course, you said he's, you know, he's sort of moved on from Lois. He's made his peace with that. But yes. could we see John Henry maybe start to find a different love interest maybe this season? I, you know, I would love it just to like have him do something. Look, you know, like, there's only but so many people I can like fight and be intense about. You know what yeah, I mean? That is like, very like, true. <laughs> you know, there's always there's always gonna be a villain. There's always that. I, I promise you, we got a lot of John Henry action. Like a lot. This season is actually gonna be kind of crazy. But yeah, it'll be nice to see that kind of side, like a domesticated side. You know what I mean? Like like kind of. I really want to tap into what was John Henry like before he went through all the trauma. You know, who yeah. was this guy at his core? And I think we're gonna start seeing more of that come out come to the surface as the season progresses and yeah it's, it's, it's gonna be nice all right we'll I'll have to wait and see for that one so i've seen in some interviews that you've done where you talk about how well you get along with the cast and how much everybody gets along and how much you enjoy working with one another do you have a favorite story that you can share with us from when the cameras weren't rolling someone that just something that just oh. really sticks out in your mind oh my gosh yeah <laughs> this is okay this is it's not a favorite just like a recent one <laughs> this is just so that's dumb. good too hey yeah. that works for me <laughs> yeah 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 it's just uh because over the weekend because like you know we're, fi we're filming the finale right now so we're winding down and uh so we did a little cast thing at, at tyler's place just like you know like as the last weekend last hurrah and we decided i don't know who introduced this but there's something like a hot chip challenge it's something like there's i know exactly what you're talking about yep okay yeah it comes in like individually wrapped yep. in foil and then in a box coffin. That should be enough warning not to do it. <laughs> but we're, I'm not the brightest, apparently, because I, along with a bunch of people from the show, and uh, uh, you know, we decided like, oh, we're going to like, let's try this together. And it didn't go well. Uh, I mean, went as well as expected in, insofar as if you eat something that says this is dangerous and you shouldn't eat it if you have a heart condition, it's probably not going to be good. So, so we were over there just together acting the fool and, and, and like we do it all together and, and, and we started. 
And like at first we're like, oh, it's fine. Everything's this is easy. Then me, like the idiot, I'm like, oh, let me take another piece. Cause like, oh, oh no, I got this. man. I know, I know. And Sophia follows <laughs> me. And and so and so we're out <laughs> like it kicks in. And then it's just all of us just going around just being like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And of course, it's only the fools. It's like me, Tyler, Sophia, a guy on our crew named Birdie and David of uh, uh, Bitsy's husband. Bitsy and M, Emmanuel, have nothing to do with it. They just they're, they're, I'm like, do you want to join? And they're like, no, you're idiots. So uh, I know they're smart. smart. Women tend to be smarter. Uh, so so yeah, so it was, uh, it was it's things like that. That's again, you're right. Like that's to me what makes it fun because, you know, you're shooting for 14 hour plus days every day and, and, you know, it's tiring and like the weather up here is like, you know, brutal sometimes. So to have that kind of camaraderie and that fun, it, it's really good. That's incredible, man. I love that story. I really hope there's a video of this somewhere that is going to get released at some point. I was say, there is video. I, I, I will see if it gets out because it's, I look kind of stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll tag you then if that's the case. Yes. <laughs> so you, you, as your character starts to evolve, obviously as you become more of a member of the community, is there anyone that you haven't gotten a hand of a lot of scenes with up to this point that you're going to get to work with a little bit more this season? I will say my dream because she's my work wife is Sophia. Sophia has me. Uh, uh, you know, like like we just because we always joke about we hang out the most and then but we don't actually interact. You know, like. I, We'll see if it happens more this season. I, I, I think the good part about what we ended last season is that a lot of people now know are in on the secret. Because, you know, sometimes it feels like there's a superhero side and there's another show. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because not everybody knows. So because more people are involved, we start getting a little more interaction with other people in the cast. So so it's cool. Yes. But I would love more scenes with Sophia because I just love Sophia. We're great. Before I let you go. There's a lot of changes going on in DC right now and CW in general, you know, with James Gunn and Peter Safran coming in. What are your hopes for this show and for John Henry beyond this season? I mean, at this point, look, I I know as much as everyone else, you know, no one knows. We, we, we It's all sort of, you know, up in the air because you're right. There are so many changes going on in a, in a grand scale. I mean, like James Gunn already laid out his... um. 10 year plan. So my hope is like, yeah, I would love to get another season or two in at least because I, I would like us to end. I'd like us to know ahead of time so that we can really craft a good finale. And like I said, we don't know. So, so, so I, I, I think if we got a heads up, I would love that. I think that'd be good for the storyline for the fans. Oh, look, yeah, what I love, I mean, yeah, what I love, like a John Henry theoretical spinoff. Yeah. I'm not going to be like, oh, uh, please don't give me yes. a steel spinoff. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not stupid. Uh, 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 do I think that's going to happen? No, realistically, I'm, I'm a realist about this stuff. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm just, I've just been glad to be on the journey at all. It's just been really cool to just play superheroes and get to talk to people like you who are wearing a Superman shirt, which by the way, I notice. And that's thank right. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Got to represent the brand. Got to rep the brand yeah. and make sure that we're all watching. Well, A. Parks, thank you so much, man, for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, James. So that's it. Some of my favorite interview moments from the past year. Of course, you can always relive every interview, every show by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You can always listen at downandnerdypodcast.com. Of course, on the website, there's timestamps on there and stuff so you can skip to segments of stuff that you want to hear and, you know, skip around a little bit. So that's, you know, that's it's always a feature that I know the people love. You can also follow along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram at Down and Nerdy on Facebook at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. I will say as I start creeping towards 500 episodes, there's going to be some changes coming. I could tease that tease that for you a little bit. There's going to be some changes coming to the show. Not going to tell you exactly what those changes are going to be, but it's going to be really something I'm really excited about. Don't worry, the heart and soul of the show is still going to stay the same. But there's going to be you know, just a couple of little tweaks here and there that I think 
you are really, really going to like. Thank you for spending part of your year with me. Thank you, as always, for supporting me, supporting the show all these years. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing this. And I certainly wouldn't be doing this for as long as I've been doing it. If you've been a supporter from the beginning, or maybe you just found the show here from these interview samples in this best of show, welcome or thank you. Either way or both, thank you so much for finding the show and listening because I'm forever grateful for your support. And I also want you to remember, as I always say, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 